Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Pull up a chair, turn up the volume. It's time for another episode of Public Display of Imagination, where we talk to authors about their deepest, darkest secrets, the pet they always wanted to have, the superhero they wanted to be, the movie star they wanted to marry, and sometimes we even talk about their books. I'm your host, Mark Dwayne Combs. With any luck, no one will ever find out that you listen to this show. And if they do, you can always play that I Lost the Bet card. If you happen to be an author and you think your writing career can withstand a guest appearance on the show, feel free to stalk me on Facebook or Twitter. You found the show, so finding me can't be that hard. And now that we've got all that nonsense out of the way, let's find out who we're talking with today. The events of human history have transpired for one of two reasons. We must conclude that historical events occur by accident for no apparent reason or because someone in authority conspired with others to orchestrate and perpetuate the ever-unfolding chain of events. Perhaps it's a mixture of both. But is it a 50-50 blend? Our guest today has devoted countless hours to detailing the events that have given way to the unfolding of history. I'm pleased to talk with Ralph Epperson. He's the author of The Unseen Hand, and he joins us for our conversation today. Ralph, thank you so very much. Welcome to the program. Well, you're very kind to invite me, and I'm happy to discuss my book and my work with you today. I'm very excited about it. I want to first give our audience an opportunity to kind of get to know you and your background. I've done a lot of research there, but I can't assume that everybody listening to me is familiar with the book and your personal background. So I'd like to give you an opportunity to talk about yourself a little bit with your education, your field of study and interest and things of that nature. And then we'll deal more with the book itself and the particular things in the book in just a little bit. I see. Thank you. Yeah, well, it might be a good place to start going back to after I graduated from college. I went to California for my first job uh, and I, uh, Los Angeles. And I, uh, once I got there, I voted in the 62, 1962 election between uh, Richard Nixon and Pat Brown for, uh, for governor. And I thought I was doing a good job because I knew, but I did not know anything about California politics. So I joined the Young Republicans, and I met a young man named Jim, who later became a good friend of mine. I didn't know him at the time. He said, why are you here? I said, I'm here to learn how to vote on uh, which governor and which uh, proposition and which judge. He said, no, you're here to read. And he suggested I started reading revisionist history. That's what he called it. I said, I don't know what that is. He said, that's my point. So he gave me a book to read called None Dare Call It Treason. And when I finished that book, I knew the author was right. It just made sense, and that's what started started me researching. I've since read 1,100 books. That's a 
going up every day, but not quite as much as as before, because I think I figured this thing out, what's going on in this country. But I read 1,100 books. I uh, started lecturing uh, when I was asked to speak at a community college by a friend of mine who had a class, uh, one-hour class, so I came in and lectured. And after I got finished, he uh, he, uh, thanked me very much, and I left. And then about a month or so later, he called me back and said, he said, Ralph, you are a natural teacher. I said, I don't know what you're talking about. He said, no, I'm not joking. He said, we are still talking about what you talked about a month ago. They want to know more about you and what you're doing. So I said, I'm going to try to arrange for you to teach here at Mount Hood Community College up near Portland, Oregon. So he did. And I started that. And that I just put together lectures from the books that I've read, presuming that they would better, be better off having someone who could explain it better than I could. And so that's the way I taught. I would point out, uh, you know, I'm I, I, a quote number one, and then uh, talk about it, and go to quote number two, and did this for a couple of semesters, well, it was the quarters, two quarters. And my students were overwhelmed, so I decided, they told me to put it in book form. They'd never heard this before. So I did, and I wrote The Unseen Hand in 1985. It's still being published. Um, uh, It's still being sold. It's still being published. And it's also being published in seven foreign nations, none of which I had anything to do with except write the book, and I got a letter from the publisher saying, can we translate it into whatever language and sell it? And I said, yes. So I'm stunned by that because I never expected that to happen, but seven foreign nations have printed the book, and it's still being sold by them as well. So I've I've done talk shows. In fact, I have over 500 talk shows now since I started in 96, counting them. And uh, I do them whatever anyone calls, liberal or conservative or neutral, whatever it is, I do it because I'm, I'm a teacher and I believe in education, uh, keeping it simple so that the average American can understand. And I speak about the issues of the day that he wants to know about. Why is my uh, daughter uh, paying $50,000 a year to go to college? Uh, why, why is my house foreclosed? Why does my wife have to work with me? Uh, in the workforce to make our bills, monthly bills, when I didn't have to use to do that. All these things are issues that I talk about. And the world has certainly changed a lot since the book Unseen Hand came out. Uh, You said that was in the mid-80s. I know I grew up in the 60s, and I'm going to date you just a few years ahead of me without giving away your real age unless you want to do that, Ralph. No, that's fine. Um, I just turned 80. Just turned 80. Okay. And where did you graduate college from, just so our folks know? University of Arizona in 1959. And went to California from there. And a book was put in your hand called None Dare Call It Treason. That resonated with you in what way? Yes. Well, it just, it was a history book. And, and of course, I not, was not a great history student. I majored in business, but I, but I knew enough about the wars and the, and the, the, uh, uh depressions, et cetera. Especially when I was in college, I took business courses. We talked about depressions. And I realized this man who, John Stormer, who wrote it, was right. He was right. These things happen, and I hate to say it, under my watch, although I was only, what, 21 or 22, it didn't matter. 
these things were happening right now. And in fact, uh, much, many of the things she predicted have since come true. A book was written probably in 1962 or 63, something like that. So, uh, and so I just kept reading, and the more that I read, the more I realized there's something going on in America. We're being taken someplace, and the Unseen Hand deals about how we've been used, and uh, in our wars and revolutions and depressions, how they were created by a conspiracy. And that's what the book is. As you pointed out, things either happen by accident or they happen by design, and these are by design. They plan events like you and I did to talk about this today. We talked about it a couple of weeks, about a week or so ago, and we set up an appointment and we were now doing it. But that's the way it worked. These people plan these things and they cause them to happen. I had a professor in college who used to tell me when things fall together, it's usually because someone pushed them in that direction. And I've found that throughout my life to be true that when things happen, it's usually because someone worked to kind of push things in that particular direction. Now, you started teaching at a community college in Oregon because someone asked you to do that. What was the path between that first set of initial lectures that you did and what led to eventually you deciding to put some things in print? With your first well, this was this was back in 1973, so it's quite a, 12 years before I wrote the book. But but I met this fellow who was a teacher at Mount Hood. He had a master's degree, and you know, to teach at a community college, you need at least a master's. So, but he invited me to come lecture to one of his classes. I think it was called political science or something. So I did. I told him with documentation. Cause that's why I always lecture. I use, uh, I think I probably used uh, handouts, and I had quotes and, and graphs and things on paper, and I handed one to every student, and then we went through them. They were able to read uh, what I was going to talk about, a certain quote or a particular graph and what it meant. And I talked about how America, our government, allowed American businessmen to, to build Russia's economy after the revolution of 1917. We built their machine, including their military power. Our government did that. And so I documented that, and we talked. They'd never heard that before. They didn't know anything about that. But it's true. It's real. So I, I showed it. And that's when he called me back and said, you're, you're a natural teacher. I, I later on, I only taught there for a couple of quarters, and then I left California, uh, Oregon and came to Arizona. So I didn't finish, but... Uh, continue with that, but they one of the students, the, the, the dean sent out a an anonymous questionnaire that I didn't know about after about three like three three or four weeks, and he called me in the office and I said, "Boy, he's going to rip me apart." He said, "No, I want you to read these," and he handed me about twenty of these, and I read them, and they was very consistent. Most of them all said, "This man has the ability to make complex issues simple." Well, what is education? But getting there to be taught. You don't use fancy words. You use their language, and you teach them, and they walk away with knowledge. And so that's what I was doing. So they kept saying, listen, you've got to put this into book form. And I was in 73. I decided, listen, I, I'm the kind of guy that has to tie a, 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 a balloon on my antenna in my car so I can find it in a parking lot. I can't write a book. Well, it took me 12 years to sit down finally about 83 
to sit down and write it, and I did. The Unseen Hand, it's, as I said, it's now published and still still selling. It's a really, really good book. I've read large portions of the book. It's not light reading, folks. It's not 150 pages and you're done. Uh, it's a fairly thick book, and it'll take you a day or two to get through it. And it will hold your attention. I, whether you are familiar with these issues, with the things that are brought to the forefront, or whether they are things you have never before in your life thought about, the way they're introduced, the information that's brought to the table, will have you following along and giving thought to things you've never really considered before. Now, Ralph, take us through the early stages, I guess. You said you had never written a book before. You weren't sure how to, you know, uh, the whole idea of putting this down in print. Take us through some of the stages. You said 12 years from the community college experience to the first printing of Unseen Hand. What kind of uh, pushed the dominoes for you to get you to the first printed book? Well, I got laid off uh, uh, from my job. Uh, the uh, I wasn't fired. I was laid off. The job just disappeared. Mm-hmm. So I was getting unemployment. I said, well, now's the time to do it. So I rented a, I, this is way before computers. I rented a, uh, uh, one of those, what they call a selectric typewriter that had the white ribbon to <laughs> make corrections on. And I started typing it into on a sheet of paper at 8 by 11. And, uh, of course, I'm, I'm a perfectionist, which means I would, I would type and then, uh, you know, let it sit for a while and then go back and reread it and read it several times and correct it and make changes. So finally I got it ready to pre-publish and I did so. Uh, I was able to, by God's grace, I, I found a friend of mine. I worked for the school district, uh, in about 1980. And I got to know the people, the print shop they had, the basement. And because uh, I, I worked in the office, I didn't work. I wasn't a teacher. I was working in the business office. And so they, uh, he had created his own business, and I stumbled into him. And he had just bought an, a Xerox. Uh, we had leased, I guess it was at least a high-speed Xerox machine, and he was able to cut the price pages down to about three cents a piece. And my buck was 500 pages, so it cost me $15. I guess is that right? 500 times three is 15, whatever it was. And so I put, had him print up 250 of them, and I paid him for it. And then I had it bound, and I sold him. And I kept saying, please tell me what you think of my book. And uh, I sold it locally. And I'll give you one quick story. The lady, uh, the, one of the fellows who was uh, stationed as lieutenant at, at our Air Force base in Tucson, was a friend. He read the book. He said, I'm going to give this book to my mother. And my mother is an, a bookaholic. She reads everything constantly. And I said, I said, well, ask her to read it and then have her tell you what she th- thinks about it and whether or not I should publish it, you know, meaning in a regular publishing house. So she came back after Christmas and said, I want to tell you what she said. She said she read the book. She couldn't put it down. And she said, tell him. It's the, in fact, she's called it the best book she'd ever read. And tell him to publish it post haste. I'll give you one more story. I was selling my uh, my books. Uh, I have four books out, but I sold all four of them. And I had them on a table at a gun show in Phoenix. Uh, north of our city capital, but it was north of Tucson, so I was up there for the day. It was a weekend. And Sunday, when we're all closing down, and other people that all closed down, I said, I'm going to wait until the last, uh, they closed at four, I'm going to wait till four, because there'll be people leaving, even booksellers. And so a young man walked by, uh, by himself, there was hardly anyone else at the building. 
uh, he walked by, he stopped about 10 feet past my desk and turned around and looked at me and said, did you write that, uh, he didn't know the title, he said, that black book, and it was the unseen hand. And I said, yes. And I said, uh, he said, let me tell you this. He says, I am working within one semester of completing my master's degree, and I'm going on for a PhD. Now, that means 12 years of, of school, public school, four years of college, and then two years of master's. That's what, 16, 18 years of schooling. He said, I learned more about my subject in your book than I have in 18 years of study. And I said, my friend, I wrote the book for you. Can you believe that? He read more, learned more about political science and history in my book than he has in 18 years of schooling, which means he's being taught nothing. <laughs> so <laughs> when I, he told me that, and I said that, plus the lady, and the book has been selling ever since. When we have students... Today, and we're going to move from the period of 1985-1986 forward 30-plus years, 35 years, into our modern-day times. We have students going to college today that are being taught, and they're being taught by professors that have, without question, certain philosophies and agendas that structure the courses that they teach. Yes. If you could sit down with a freshman class today, is there one or two things that you would want to kind of pin on the board for them to say, as you go forward these next four years, keep these two anchor points in mind and let other things play off of it as you go? Is there just a couple of cornerstones you might give them to say, hey, hang on to this, and whatever you do, don't let it get buried in, in all of the studies that you're about to undergo? Yes, I, I've already had four. Excuse me, I've got some good morning uh, congestion from the hay fever I have. So anyway, I've had four personal experiences with four different teachers at the University of Arizona. Uh, maybe the best one would be the ROTC department. Uh, at the University of Arizona, you're, uh, the first two years of your uh, four years there, uh, you're required to get a uniform and wear it once a week. On uh, for not you have a one hour class, I think, and also we march for one hour. So as I remember, <clears throat> so I I was going to get a commission, thinking that that's what the purpose was to <clears throat> determine since you're a college graduate or will be a college graduate, you can get a commission after you complete your four years there. And I was thinking it's better to be an officer than an enlisted man. So I joined the reserves and then uh, took the physical for the ROTC. I passed the reserve, Army Reserve physical, but failed the ROTC physical because I had a heart member that apparently showed up. And, of course, afterwards, uh, <laughs> it went away. So I don't have it even today. But anyway, so I failed. But anyway... I went back after I came back to Tucson in 1976 after living in California and Oregon. I went to go see the the colonel in charge of the Army ROTC, and I said to him, uh, "I know uh, he's a regular Army officer who's periodically they rotate these colonels, and sometimes they have to do maybe one or two years, then they go back to regular being an Army officer." 
So I said to him, uh, I know you're going to get the uh, young uh, sophomores convinced that they need to join the last two years and get a commission. And I said, uh, are you going to teach them that our government <clears throat> has armed and trained the Russian government, the communist government in Russia, to fight them if there's ever a war? He said, what are you talking about? I said, well, I'd like to show you the evidence that this is true. He said, yeah, yeah. I said, tell you what I'll do. <clears throat> he got the, uh, excuse me, he congestion. He got the uh, Navy ROTC staff and his staff and the Air Force. There were three branches at that time. There was only two when I was in college, but there's three now. So he got all three of their staff. There's probably 20 of them. And I came in and lectured for an hour and a half, showing them the documented evidence that America has been arming Russia with technology, technology that they're using to build machines to kill Americans. And this was during the, after the Vietnamese War, which we did this. We did this all the time during the Vietnamese War. So he said, uh, I thought I would hear, I gave the lecture to the student, the people. <clears throat> they left and I had, didn't have any contact. And he never called me and said, listen, I want you to uh, talk, about, talk to my students about that. And so later on, I went in to see him. A month later, so I, I don't understand. How come you're not going to teach your students this? And it was let them know that when they, if we fight a war with Russia, the technology that's facing them and killing them comes from the United States. That's that simple. So he, we talked about that, but he got in, he taught, made me read a book called uh, about the Peloponnesian Wars, which was the land forces against the, the Navy forces, wherever it was. And I said, listen, my friend, I didn't say anything, but I, after I left, I said, you know, here's the, here's the problem. If he introduces this subject, he might not get as many students as he's required to get into the ROTC commission program. And then he wouldn't get a good rating by his officers, and um, he might not get to be able to retire. So in other words, he's willing to trade the death of his own students so that he can get a retirement. That's where we are. The business professors at college are fearful of the same thing. Uh, they don't want to get into the truth. Uh, so if I could talk to a business college, the, probably the best example I could give them would be a quote from Thomas Jefferson, <clears throat> president, <clears throat> excuse me, third president of the United States. And I'll have paraphrased it. I don't have it memorized. But he said, uh, if you create a central bank, you can expect perpetual war. <clears throat> well, I'll be darned. <clears throat> I have this thing in a plastic sheet, you know, sheet holders on one side, uh, that quote. On the other side, I've got a, a, a listing of all of the wars we've had since 1776. And the nation had been a nation at that time. It was 2015, I think. 2,235 years, and we'd been at war 209 of those 235 years. Wow. And we've got a central bank called the Federal Reserve. So I have a DVD called Abolish It. So I would require that they watch the DVD and then make a decision. Are they going to allow their government to train the enemy and arm them so that when they go to war, they're going to be killed by our own by our own technology. So that would be a good thing to listen. And then also, I would teach them, you're, you're going to be lied to. And that's why I said, I now say, to end this discussion about the university, I now say that at least 75% of what I was taught at that university in every field, it's all lies. 
It's lies. They didn't happen the way it did. Uh, the uh, uh, economics that I t- was taught simply is not true. They don't teach the free market. They teach communism and socialism. And that's where we are as a nation. So I'd say to them, be open and listen to someone when they try to warn you about what's going on in this country. We're going to take just a quick break. When we come back, we're going to dig into the book itself, The Unseen Hand. What are the key anchor points? What put pieces of the mosaic together? When did it begin to emerge? And how did it become clear? Ralph Epperson is our guest. Please don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. I hope you're enjoying this conversation as much as I am. We're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be back to talk with our guests just a little bit more on the other side. Stay tuned. This is Katie Carter, the author of the Insurrection series, and you're listening to Public Display of Imagination with your host, Mark Dwayne Combs. This podcast is made possible by the gracious support of those who have become friends of the show through Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash PDI and become a valued part of the show. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash P-D-I. Do you Amazon? I bet you do. I do too. I buy a lot of stuff from Amazon or through Amazon, I should say. Hey, listen, can I ask you to do me a favor? The next time you're going to Amazon, would you use one of my links from my webpage or my newsletter? See, I'm an Amazon affiliate. And as an author, I get a small percentage every time someone uses one of my links to access their site. You get the same shopping experience you've always gotten, but it's a real benefit for me, and I would greatly appreciate it. So if you're going to Amazon, please let me be your doorway. Thank you for listening to today's interview. I'm really enjoying the conversation with our guest, and we'll get back to it in just a second. But before we do, I wanted to remind you that I'm also an author. I've got a book on Amazon right now. It's called Push. You'll see a link for the book right here on the webpage, and if you click on it, you'll get to read some of the other reviews that are out there as well. Pick up a copy and discover why you've got no shot at ever being ordinary. Now let's get back to our show. Every generation We're back with our guest, Ralph Epperson. We're talking about his book, The Unseen Hand. It's something that we kind of introduced a little bit in our first segment. We're going to dig a little bit deeper into it in this segment, into how it came into being and what were some of the key components of the book as those puzzle pieces came together. But before we do that, Ralph, I want to give you an opportunity to tell folks how they can find you on social media. I know that you're active on social media. You and I connected through Facebook, but I may not be aware of all the places where people can find you. So I want to give you that opportunity to let people know if they want to know more about your work, the best way to find you on the web and get in touch. Thank you very much. Yes. Uh, My name is simply Ralph, R-A-L-P-H, and then Epperson, E-P-P-E-R-S-O-N, Epperson. So that's the way to reach me on Facebook. Uh, you could go to my website, which is www.ralph, R-A-L-P-H, dash, Epperson, E-P-P-E-R-S-O-N, dot com. And uh, on one on my website, uh, at the bottom of it, there's a phone number, which is my home phone. It rings in my home. 
I run my business out of my home. And I, so, and I might answer at Publius Press. That's the name of my publishing company. But, uh, but, but I can be reached. People call me at all times of the day and night, and uh, and I appreciate that because I'm single. I don't have a family. I'm by myself. So I just do. I answer the phone. I've got time to talk. No one is bothering me. Uh, you know, come to go for a walk, or <laughs> don't have a dog to say it's time to walk me. I just take uh, phone calls when I get the chance. And just so people will know, you're currently in Arizona, which is the mountain time zone, I believe, correct? That's correct. We don't go into daylight savings. So we're the same time as California. Okay. So right now, same time as the Pacific uh, time zone with California, just so those of you who live in different time zones would kind of be aware of, hey, don't call Ralph at 8 o'clock in the morning if you live in the eastern time zone because... It's five o'clock where he is, and he may still be waiting for that first cup of coffee to uh, percolate <laughs> so that he can sit down and finish his crossword puzzle before he takes some calls. Ralph, you mentioned something at the end of our last segment that I kind of want to... I've scratched my head, and I've got to ask this question. I don't want to ask this question, but I really have to because I'm interested in your opinion on it, and I think our listeners would be interested in your opinion on it. We were talking about what's being taught in the college classroom today and how much of it is out-and-out errors. I believe you used the word lies, what I want to ask is how much of that is taught with an agenda or a purpose in mind versus how much the professor is just conveying in error without being aware that they are not giving a accurate assessment of the topic matter that they're teaching. And I want to give you an opportunity to speak on that for just a minute before we dig into another topic. Okay, did, did I mention the uh, fact that I worked uh, for the school district in Tucson in the business office? Uh, did I Was that part of the first segment? That was, and you did mention that, uh, the, okay. the school district that you worked for there and also the, the district up in Oregon that you were teaching at the community college. Yes. Well, anyway, let's just say this. We are being intentionally dumbed down, and that started in the 1920s by uh, John Dewey, uh, you, I, I've talked about, uh, I'm a Christian, and it, I believe that God has been moving me and, and arranging for things. One day, I was visiting, uh, my wife and I were having lunch, and, and, uh, and she worked at an employment agency, and I was working at the school district, and a young man showed up, and by the God's grace, he had a magazine with him. Uh, I've forgotten the name of it, but it was a, a monthly and a major one. And he gave it to me, and it was a review of the first hundred year or first fifty years, I guess, of that magazine. And so they asked the people in various fields who was the leading uh, supporter of your particular view, whatever it was. And the educational people all said John Dewey. John Dewey was a Marxist communist, a devolutionist, and he had signed the uh, uh, Humanist Manifesto. Humanism is a legally recognized religion of the United States. It's been two Supreme Court decisions have stated that humanism is a religion and therefore entitled to the 501c3 tax-free status. So now, what is humanism? Well, you need to study this because this is what our schools are teaching because John Dewey was a humanist. He believed in evolution, which is a total fraud. I can prove it very easily and have done so and do so all the time. 
Secondly, he believed in communism. He was a uh, he, didn't, he wasn't a Marxist by name, but he was a communist in philosophy. He believed in government solving all of our problems and uh, taking from the rich to give to the poor, and he believed in uh, no religion, no morality. Uh, he said that there there was no God, and the, therefore we don't need the props. Called it the props of religion. So this is what he's teaching, and he was the leading educator of the fifty years of this magazine. So our schools are being dumbed down. It's ironic, by the way, that um, uh, Sanders, what's his name, uh, Sanders, the guy that ran against Hillary, what was his name? Bernie Sanders. But yes, he got his his uh, bachelor's degree from the University of Chicago, which was funded by John D. Rockefeller, the wealthiest man in the world. He created a university, and little Sanders, our senator, went there to study, and that's where he learned socialism. So the very wealthy are socialists. They're communists. And I'm, that's startling because it doesn't make sense. Oh, yes, it does. There's a term in economics called a monopoly, and there's two different types. A monopoly is uh, one one seller in the marketplace. Uh, generally, when he's one seller, he has the power to charge whatever he jolly well wants. And then there's another type of monopoly called a coercive monopoly, where you get control of government, and government excludes everyone else from competing. And the very wealthy love coercive monopolies. And that's what Russia communism, Russian communism is. It's not pure Marxism. It's coercive monopolies. When Lenin took over, he gave the uh, the uh, 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 titles. The, he called it concessions to certain individuals to build the railroads or the factories or the certain type, like the car industry or the uh, television industry, whatever it was, to certain people who had funded his revolution in 1917. And those those corporations, American corporations, still own the railroads and the factories, etc., in Russia today. So it's a coercive monopoly. No one can compete. They can charge whatever they jolly well want. Well, that was a revelation to me, because I that was partially explained in none dare call it treason. So I now teach that in my classes. It's covered in the unseen hand. You'll learn. I'll document that fact. We built our own enemy. So once we did that, then, of course, that opens up all sorts of problems for our students. They're not being taught the truth. One of the other people I talked to was a Russian history professor at the University of Arizona. Uh, I was... Back in the 90s, I was giving a speech to every civic group I could find in Tucson. Uh, it was only half an hour, but I, I brought slides and a handout and the, box, the books with me. And when I arranged one particular uh, uh, luncheon club, uh, he said, well, gee, I can assure you, uh, we've got a, a professor of Russian history at the uh, in our club, and I said, well, I, I don't, I don't care what you do to get him there. If you have to hog time and force him, have him show up. I'd love to meet him. So he showed up. He came there, and uh, uh, he he came up to me before. So I'm really looking forward to what you have to say, uh, Mr. Evans. I'm looking, hoping, I hope you'll listen, and uh, we can discuss it later. So I gave the half hour documenting it with the books and the documentation I had with me. And so at the end of the program, he stood up and asked, gave a question. He said, I really enjoyed what you had to say, but you're wrong. I said, what do you mean I'm wrong? I documented it. 
I know, but it, but I've been to Russia several times. I I know this is not true. And I said, wait a minute, you, are you calling Professor Anthony Sutton, who's researched this thing with the documentation from the old government records? He said, well, I guess, guess so. So in other words, he, when, when he stood up, the, the, the group almost turned to him like, here's our champion. He's going to undo this young whippersnapper that uh, has never been to Russia. And so they all turned to their champion, and I destroyed him. Uh, Pridely. Please don't. I wasn't angry. I just laid out the evidence. So he came up to me later and said, uh, uh, thank you very much. And I said, uh, this was, I think, like in June or something. I said, you're going to be teaching any summer school this summer? He said, yes, a Russian history class. I said, good. Could I come? He said, yes. He said, well, I can't afford to pay for it. He said, no, just show up. That's so right. probably attended half of the lectures, maybe three-fourths of them, because I was working and I had to leave the city part-time. So let me finish. I'll end with this last comment. He, after we got through, I was list, writing down notes as I was listening to his lectures. But since I didn't pay for him, I didn't want to challenge him. I just wanted to uh, listen. And so I made notes. So I sat down with him at the end. I said, I want to talk to you. Shut the door. Take the phone off there. I said, listen, Professor, you know that I'm telling the truth, don't you? And he leaned back in his chair and said, yes. I said, Professor, listen, why don't you do this? Why don't you let me say it? You don't have to say it. Say, listen, there's a, there's a school of thought uh, that believes that American businessmen have uh, financed Russian communism. And I don't believe that, but I thought you wanted to at least be aware of it. I'll let him explain it. Let me explain it with my documentation. I can't do that, he said. Wait a minute. That was, uh, you know, the truth and all sides being heard and uh, academic freedom. No, I can't do that. He knew, which means he was lying knowingly to his students. Same thing with the ROTC officer. He knew that I was right, but he wouldn't tell his own students that we were arming the enemy they might uh, contend with if we ever went to war with Russia. That's scary. That is very scary. That is very scary. And I knew you had a story there that would connect those dots for us. My wife and I, within the last four months, I'm going to say, within the last four or five months, completed reading through a book and discussing a book by Anne Rand called Atlas Shrugged. Oh, yes. If you could recommend that that as reading. One of the earliest books I read. I was going to say, if you could recommend that as reading to anyone in political science or economics, how many stars would you give it? How much would you underline this as a book that any young student needs to read? Well, I would urge everyone to read that book. Now, it's it's rather good size. It's probably four or five hundred pages, as I remember. But here's what you do: if you buy the book, go towards the back of the book and look for the speech of John Galt, G-A-L-T, John Galt, and just read his summation of the entire book. He talks about the the philosophy of free enterprise and capitalism. And it's brilliant. Anne Rand was a brilliant writer, and she understood. And boy, when I read her books, I understood as well. I read about three of her books uh, back in the 60s and uh, probably 60s and late 60s of my life. And I was I always recommended it. But then, of course, there's other books because you, you don't want to read a 500-page book to read John Galt because that's the essence of her whole philosophy. She called it objectivism, and she was right. And unfortunately... Uh, we, we as Americans weren't listening. Mm. A really eye-opening read. I, I just, 
I had never read it before, but my wife and I ended up discussing that book day after day after day after day. Really eye-opening read. Let's get back to your book, because that's the purpose for our conversation. This book was published in the mid-80s, but you said it took a number of years to put it together. I want you to walk us through the initial pieces of that mosaic as it began to emerge and as you began to see the point and the counterpoint and how the puzzle pieces fit. What were some of the anchors that you built off of and how did they begin to come together for you and really present an image that was clear and undeniable? Well, as I read, you know, the early books at the time, uh, they only gave part of the story. Of course, you know, in the early uh, 60s, there was very little written on this subject. And John Stormer's book was probably one of the first. But the others, as I started, were very fundamental. Uh, I read a little book by Phyllis Schlafly about how the, the Republicans... Uh, her book was called A Choice, Not an Echo, meaning that she was aware that she had documentation that the Republican Party was controlled uh, and that the candidates that they, we, were select, we were electing were selected by them. And so once she made that, I started thinking, well, maybe the Democrats were controlled as well. But so I started reading that. And but going back to when I when I lectured, I think I already mentioned this, when I lectured at my own class, I used the quotes of others. In other words, I, I went to my, I learned to underline when I was in college. Uh, you read the whole chapter, but you underline the essence and the points that you think are important. And that's what I did. So when I would prefer a lecture, uh, lecture number three, I went through all of my books and pulled out all the quotes that I wanted to use and put them in sequence and then just made a copy of per sheet and then put that in a notebook and I would read the quote, then talk about it, then go to the next one. So that's the way I wrote my book. When I finally decided to write it, I just I just wrote down what I was saying, uh, but used the quote. I, I've had PhDs call me and tell me that one PhD said that he's been reading doctoral dissertations for years, and he said, this is, this is worthy of a doctoral dissertation with very little uh, change. He said, I would give you an A on your thing on the unseen end. He liked it so well. I had a double PhD call me. Uh, well, he called a friend of mine who told me later uh, that this man said this, but he said that he said the same thing. This book was brilliantly written. It's easy to understand. I don't try to uh, use a fancy language. I just define and use the examples of others. But putting it together was difficult because I wanted to make sure it was readable and also of some value. That's why I pre-published it with 250 copies of it. By the way, once in a while on eBay, one of those copies, it's a hardbound, and it's 8.5 by 11. It's a good-sized book. They're selling, people are selling them because I numbered them. I, I uh, printed on the front page uh, of the book when you open it up, I had a blank number so and so up 250, and I'd write in the number, and they were selling them. So I guess that's about people feel it's an autographed copy or whatever it is. <laughs> the book, uh, they could buy it in hardbound, but there are only 250 of them. So, by the way, that was what it was sitting down and trying to, to make it easy to understand so that anyone could read it. The, the Army, I'm told. Uh, publishes things for the student, the army to learn at the ninth grade reading level. These are high school graduates that can't read at the ninth grade level. So the, things are simple. Uh, see Dick run, see Spot run, run Mary run, jump Mary, this kind of thing. That's, that's about the level 
of the high school graduates today as much, as much as they could read. But putting it together was difficult. And then once I got it published, it, as I said, it's still selling, and I'm very pleased by that. If someone was to crack that book open, and I know there's, there's what, 35, 38 chapters, different chapters in that like, book, something along that line? Um, and and it starts out early on and discusses the World Bank and kind of builds off of that with some things. How important, I mean, does does everything hinge on that World Bank? Is I know that's a key linchpin, but if, and, and I want to give you an opportunity to explain, explain that just a little bit because I know it's not a simple explanation, but it's such a key that the World yep. Bank, uh, you know, was the one thing that kind of, I guess, the glue that held all the other pieces in place. Well, the more that I read, uh, uh, as I said, Mark, the more that I read, I saw the footprints in the sand of the of this conspiracy. And the more that I read, the more the footprints became clear and legible. Perhaps the best example of this is Bill Clinton himself, our former president. In 1992, Bill Clinton accepted the Democrat National Convention's uh, nomination as president of the United States. So Wednesday night, when he delivered his speech, it was covered nationwide by all three, maybe four networks, CNN, I don't know, but at least three networks all covered the speech live while he was uh, speaking that night at the convention. So to the largest audience that he would ever have at any one time, Bill Clinton admitted that there was a conspiracy, like I've been written in the unseen hand, and this is in 1992, that there was a conspiracy and that he was supportive of it. He actually said that with his own mouth. In fact, you can read it in this book called Putting People First on page 231, where he's, uh, he's uh, transcribed his own speech. So he admitted there was a conspiracy, and the reason he admitted it was because he learned it from Dr. Carol Quigley. He said, Clinton said there were two men that got him into politics. One was John Kennedy, and the other was the President Kennedy, and the other was uh, Dr. Carol Quigley. Well, everybody, of course, knew in 92 who uh, John Kennedy was, but <laughs> probably seven people in the nation knew who Quigley was, but I did because I'd read his book. I've read two of his books. So I had I didn't listen to the speech, but people called me, said, did you hear what, what Clinton just said? I said, no, and they told me. So I went and found a copy of it. I think I got it out of the newspaper and read the whole thing, and there he praised Carol Quigley. Quigley was a professor that at Georgetown University where Bill Clinton went for his uh, undergraduate or his graduate degree, his bachelor's degree. And... Uh, he had to read. It was his book. Quigley's book was required reading for the apparently he only taught one course, it's, I guess every semester, uh, to and then he was like a visiting professor or something, maybe semi-retired. But anyway, so he wrote the book and Quigley and Clinton had to read it. And in there he says there is an inter, he called it an international anglophile network that already controls the economies of the world. They already. He admitted this in his book, and he claimed it had been made privy to the papers of this international conspiracy for two years. So Quigley was invited in the 60s, apparently, because he wrote the book in 76. So in the 60s, he was given a chance to read their secret records, he called them, and that's where he learned. Now, it's not, it's not the World Bank, it's the central banks. And economically, 
I was taught in college that all sorts of things cause inflation, which is a price rise, but no one explained what caused it. And I learned that by reading a dictionary. Inflation is defined as an increase in the money supply causing prices to rise. And I use the example in my in my book and also whenever I lecture on the subject, I say, let's look at that. Let's just say here in Tucson, uh, overnight, one night, a bunch of helicopters flew over the entire city, dropping millions of dollars of dollar bills out in, over the whole city. And the people woke up the next morning and they could pick them up as quick as they could. And then what's that going to do to prices in Tucson? Well, the guy with the most money is going to get the TV set the price rises because people are going to go and start bidding it. And when they get there, there'll be 50 people trying to buy the TV set that they've always wanted, but couldn't afford. So they bid it up. Say it's a hundred dollars. They'll bid 125, 150, 200, 500, a thousand dollars. They don't care as long as they got more dollars. So that's an increase in the prices caused by an increase in the money supply. So once you get control of the money supply, you can cause inflation. And the opposite of inflation is the deflation, where you decrease the amount of money in circulation. And this is the way you cause a crash. In the book, I talked about the crash of 1929, where it was caused by the Federal Reserve, by increasing the money supply, getting people to borrow to buy stock. And then they called in the stock, and they had to sell, and the market fell. Now, I was not taught that in college. Why? Why didn't they want to teach that to me? The cause of the depression was the privately owned Federal Reserve. But it's only one of probably a 100 central banks. And Quigley admitted in his book that these central banks meet in secret, in secret, to plan the futures of their nations. So it's really the bankers who are controlled by a conspiracy above them, but the bankers determine what their, infl- what their rates of interest are going to be, how much money they can loan out, etc. So the banks control the economies of the world. And that's a revolutionary thought because I was not taught that. I was a business major. We learned about the crash of 29, but we didn't learn who caused it and why. We're going to take just a quick break. When we come back on the other side, we're going to look at the overall web of conspiracy. How deep does it really go? How many components are really involved in it? Is it established? Is it so established that it can't possibly be overturned? Or is it just a figment of our own imagination that we're distrustful and we have a tendency to buy in to conspiracy? We're going to talk about that on the other side. Please don't go away. It's time to take just another quick break. We're going to come back after this, and we're going to go behind the curtains with our guests, ask a few questions they're not expecting. Off-the-wall questions, off-the-wall answers. You don't want to miss it. Stay tuned. Hi, this is Carter Wilson, the author of Mr. Tender's Girl, and you're listening to Public Display of Imagination with your host, Mark Dwayne Combs. This podcast is made possible by the gracious support of those who have become friends of the show through Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash pdi and become a valued part of the show. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash pdi. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. I'm really enjoying the conversation with our guest, and I think you're really going to like our final segment. But before we get to that, I wanted to remind you that I'm also an author. 
and I have a couple of inspirational books available right now on Amazon. Book two in the series is called Don't Forget Your Cape, and it's been described as a well-lit mirror in each person's private dressing room. You'll see a link to the book on Amazon right here on the webpage, and if you click on it, you can read what others are saying. Pick this book up and discover why you should never forget your cape. Now let's get back to our show. All right, we're back. We're talking with our guest, Ralph Epperson. He's been so kind to set aside time for us today, which I truly appreciate. We've been talking about his book, The Unseen Hand. We've gone into a variety of of different things and tracked a number of different trails. But in this final segment, I kind of want to back out of the trees for just a minute and look a little bit at the overall forest. Because when you talk conspiracy, uh, initially, people kind of gravitate to one of two directions on that. Some people are apt to buy into conspiracy on any case because they feel like that they're being lied to on every turn of the screw and it's all a conspiracy other people will say we contrive conspiracies of our own imagination and everything's on the up and up there's there's no conspiracies out there and conspiracy theorists are just howling at the moon and they're they're tilting at windmills that don't actually exist so we kind of want to back out of the trees for just a little bit and take a brief look at those things Ralph, first, I'd like to throw something out on the table that I actually use in my presentations. I'm a motivational speaker. I actually do use your work a little bit, not in great detail, but I do use the initial thing that we brought to the table when we began our conversation, and that is that all things either happen on accident or they happen because people conspired to make them happen. The reason I bring that up is because I want people who are busy trying to set goals that they want to achieve to understand that they have to be actively involved in the overall process of achieving those goals. They don't happen just because we dreamed them up. They don't happen just because things fell together on accident, but they happen because we conspired to put certain things in place to move us from point A to point B. So I want to give you an opportunity for just a second to talk about conspired conspiracies and how they're pieced together to actually make something happen that otherwise would have never occurred. Well, that's a good good thing to do, maybe to define the word conspiracy. It's a dictionary definition as two or more people in secret planning an event that uh, that they uh, wish to accomplish. Two or more people in secret planning an evil event. So notice, notice people who want, uh, want to have a good motive will, keep it, will look for publicity. Uh, conspiracy looks for secrecy. That's why they have to do it in secret. If they're going to plan a war uh, and fund both sides, they're not going to tell us that because once we know that, we're not going to go play a... Uh, there, was, there was a bumper sticker during the Vietnamese War. Suppose they gave a war and nobody showed up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's the problem. They don't want you to know that they're planning the event. Perhaps a good example of this would be the uh, uh, the, the crash of 29. We mentioned it briefly a few minutes ago. But that was planned by the Federal Reserve. 
probably in 1920 or so, when they started increasing the money supply. Uh, and as I said, once the Federal Reserve can do that, they can print the paper money, put it out in circulation, and they were inducing people to buy the stock market, in the stock market, because uh, it was going up. And they said, listen, you can buy uh, stocks and you can become as rich as John D. Rockefeller. Of course, that's a paraphrase, but meaning you can get rich by investing in the stock market. And here's the way they did it. Uh, someone, let's say uh, you wanted to buy one share of Epperson Unlimited uh, Corporation that I created. You cost $100, so you buy, take your $100, go to the stockbroker, and say, I want one share of Epperson Unlimited. Yes, okay. He said, here's what we can do. You can borrow $80 uh, on that stock, and then plus your 20 uh, you can buy five, or actually $90, you can buy 10 shares for $1,000, $900 borrowed, and you're 100 And then if the stock market goes up just 10%, 10% to 1100 you could sell and you would make 100% profit. You've invested $100 and you made 100 and you pay back the bank. So that's good. That's a way to do this. Well, all the extra money that was being created by the Federal Reserve was being given to the banks. They could loan it out at interest. So you buy your stock. There was only one condition, and that condition is that there is a 24-hour broker call loan, which means you arrange it through the bank, the stockbroker, but then the stockbroker would get a call from the bank saying, we want our money back. And when they did, they had the October the 29th, all the stock had to be sold. And when everybody went to the market to sell stock, the price went way down. So people who got out of the stock market in 28 took their money, hid it under the mattress, and then waited until the prices went way, way down and started buying. When I was in college, they never talked about who bought the stock. All they talked about was how many people were selling. Well, who was buying? Everyone that sold the stock got money from somebody, and those people got out in 29 because they knew it was going to happen in 29. Isn't that interesting? And so people went bankrupt. They lost their houses, their cars, whatever it was, and then unemployment. So that's the way you cause a depression. That's a conspiracy, meeting in secret, planning an evil event. Two or more people, that's the definition of it. So once I started figuring that, then you start looking for everything. And you can find it all over the, in the history, in political science, economics, business, and evolution too as well. It's all evolution. Well, that's another subject. We won't get into that. But it's easy to prove evolution didn't happen. I do it all the time. But that's the point. Why are we being lied to? That, of course, that's why my book was intended to at least show you that we have been lied to, and it's called the conspiratorial history. I've always thought, and I've not researched this, so you may be able to totally debunk what I'm about to throw out on the table for us, and of course that's okay because we're interested in your perspective on this, not mine, but I've always thought that conspiracy was a two-sided coin, that the more components there were to a conspiracy, the more people involved, the more elaborate it was, the harder it is to maintain the facade of the conspiracy. The flip side of that coin being that the more that conspiracy has been established, the deeper the rabbit hole goes, so to speak, the easier it is for it to self 
propagate without someone having to maintain and pull strings. Am I on the right track with that type of thinking, or am I really out in left field and need to be pulled back down, sat down, and straightened out on that? Well, there's no question your point's well taken. And even there's a problem. Uh, I don't know if you've been hearing, but I'm getting a bunch of static on my line. I wonder if someone's listening to our conversation. I don't know. Are you getting any static noise at all? I am not. And I do clear out our background noise um, because my on my end, it picks up things in my house, such as my air conditioner or my aquarium. Okay, but the best good. of my knowledge, the fish don't report anything that I discuss. So... On my end, I think we're good. Okay, so anyway, you're right, because now you've got a small group of people, and one of those people might very well be an informer or one who's going to break with it. But I'll tell you this, they build it in. These guys, they take an oath not to reveal the secrets, and those who do uh, end up uh, uh, floating in a bay in in Florida in a a a metal can. So... uh, it's very dangerous to, for people to betray uh, the secret. And secondly, they're all benefiting. That's one of the reasons why they do this. Why the very wealthy are benefiting by this conspiracy. They get to get the contracts and they get to make the profits uh, exorbitantly uh, in the industry that they're selling. They can charge whatever they want to because they got a monopoly, a legally, a coercive monopoly where only they're the ones that are allowed to sell. So that's why it, but your point's well taken. And, the more people you get involved, the more likely it is that there, uh, there, uh, uh, it might there might be a leak. I met in 1980. I met one of them. Uh, this guy was a retired army officer. I won't give any more details, but but we talked and uh, we met on business. He wasn't sent, as far as I can tell, to find out what Epperson believes, because back in 1980 I knew very little of this. But he told me. I said, where did you learn about this? And he said, I learned it from my father. He was involved. He sent me to the proper schools so that they, the schools taught him conspiracy, and they taught him that this is a meritorious good uh, good for the people of the world. And so he believed it, and he's working for it in support. And he got to become a colonel. So I'm I'm guessing he was probably a West Point graduate because he got the proper schools. So they teach him this stuff. As I said, uh, this ROTC officer might very well have been uh, uh, a, West, a West Point graduate and learned there that there is a conspiracy in, involved and that he'd better, uh, if he wants to get hot, get up in the ranks of uh, to become a general, he'd better support it and, and, uh, and get into it. And so we know that they do, and that's why he was afraid. This guy might have been afraid that he would lose. Maybe he didn't think he'd become a general, but he'd lose his pension if he suddenly lost 50% of the people that were signed up to become officers. They decided not to do it by learning the truth from Ralph Everson. So he was worried about it. So it certainly is a problem. And But there are very few and very rare people to reveal the truth. Uh, Quigley did it. Uh, the book that he published was published, he wrote rather, it was published by Macmillan, a major publishing house. Uh, once that book got into the hands of the right wing, and it did, Macmillan pulled the book off the market. They destroyed the plates. They weren't printing anymore. And Quigley, in an interview, uh, one of my friends has that he found, uh, Quigley gave, uh, was in his library. And he got permission from the wife after Quigley died to buy it and sell it, and he did. And in there, he admits that uh, that the uh, uh, there's always a danger of uh, revealing this stuff. 
So uh, the point is, you're right. It, but conversely, they do. People like Clinton once in a while reveal it, but even when he does, the majority of the people, first of all, ignore it. They didn't, they didn't know who Quigley was, so they don't care. But people like me come along and try to warn people, and they 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 don't believe it. It's very it's not very pleasant to believe our own government's conspiring against us, but I can assure you, it really is. Ralph, I've really enjoyed this conversation, and I'm looking forward. You've you've been so gracious as to say that possibly we could talk again in the future, and and I'll tell you, I'm already kind of looking forward to that. But I wrap up every one of my conversations with authors by asking a few creative, off-the-wall questions out of left field. And if I don't do that, I'm going to get mail. I'm going to get email. I'm going to get people sending me messages through Facebook and Twitter saying, well, wait a minute, why didn't you ask Ralph a question? We want to hear what he has to say. So if we can (laughs) suspend things for just a moment here, I want to bring you something of the creative nature And I want to ask that if you could step out of the current world that you're living in, in Arizona, and step yourself into a fictional world, would you prefer to step into the Old West, sci-fi space, or fantasy superhero realm? Which of those three would you like to visit and set up a brief residence in? Well, I, I, since I live in the Old West, I live in Tucson, and I love, I'm, I'm captivated by the uh, uh, the West that was growing up around me. As I, of course, I was, you know, I was not born into it. I was born in in the 30s, but uh, the Old West is around me probably. But then I'd, the superhero would be, have the power to uh, to to right wrongs, and I wish I could do that because we are in trouble. It's, I'll just make it one sentence. This country is in very serious trouble, and we're being led by a conspiracy that's over six, well, it's nearly 6,000 years old, and that's a matter of proof as well. So it, but, and it's very difficult to be a superhero when the people don't believe you, but you can see the evil and you can, you can stop it. That would be, uh, would probably be the best approach. But uh, of course, uh, superheroes don't exist. <laughs> That's a, a comic book feature, maybe a movie feature. And uh, I don't have the strength to do it anyway. Uh, you know, about my fiery steed and with a fiery sword uh, and my armor go off to do battle against the Don you know, the windmills of the, of the world. So I guess probably the best one would be a superhero, but it would be very difficult because it's difficult getting people to believe. All right. I want you to give me a little tidbit or a nugget for next time. Now you said you live out in the old West and I know in our conversation, uh, a couple of days ago, you brought up Jesse James, but I want to have something that we can build off of the next time we talk. So give me a little a little nugget, a little planted seed that people can look forward to. I will say this. Jesse James, the famous outlaw, did not die in 1882. He lived to be 103 and died in 1951 at 103. He was born in 1847. Jesse James ended up being the wealthiest man in the world. He came, was called one of a hundred who ruled America, one of a hundred who owned America. Jesse James, 
the famous outlaw. And while he was alive until 25, when he killed off the second time, killed off his name, and he continued living past that, he died in 51, I was 26 years before, he was a major, and I mean a major player in the past. Jesse James, the famous outlaw. All the movies that show him being shot are false. Every one of them. None of them have ever covered it that he lived to be 103. But I have. It's on. It's on the internet. It's called Jesse James lived to be 103. If you want to be have your old west version of the story uh, blown out of the water, you need to watch that. Jesse James lived to be 103. A major player. Ralph Epperson, ladies and gentlemen, Ralph Epperson. I have thoroughly enjoyed our conversation today. Thank you so much for setting aside the time. It's my pleasure anytime, Mark. Thank you. I had a lot of fun talking to our guests today. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. If you did, please let someone else know about the program. And also, if you get a chance, click on one of the links on the webpage to check out their books. And as long as you're on Amazon, you might as well do some shopping. It's one of the ways you can help support this program. You won't pay a penny more, but Amazon will send me a little cube of sugar just because you used one of my links. And that works well for everybody involved. Until next time, remember... The light at the end of someone's darkness may be you. 2 a.m. and I'm still awake writing a song. If I get it all down on paper, it's no longer inside of me. Threatening the life it belongs to. And I feel like I'm naked in front of the crowd Cause these words on my diary Screaming out loud And I know that you'll use them However you want to But you can't jump the tranquiline Cars on the cable And a like an hourglass Glued to the table No one can find the rewind But now it's saying With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.